Radio.co.uk. So it's 10 o'clock at night on Monday the 5th of December 2023 and it's been 24 hours now since I received a message that told me that one of the guests on our show over the summer period, Sophie Anderson, one half of the Cock Destroyers, has died. And this just comes weeks after we heard the same news about her partner, who also appeared on the show as a guest on the same episodes. Uh, Oliver Spedding also died. He died at the age of 34. Sophie was 36. It's incredibly sad news. We spoke at length to Sophie about their careers in the adult industry and their battles with drug addiction and the chemsex scene as well. Sophie's going to be remembered by everyone in the Outcast UK family for being a true one-off with a heart of gold and someone for whom diversity and inclusion were an incredibly important part of what they did. We're going to be talking with Paris Monroe from Gadio on an episode to drop in the next two days uh, about the sad death of Sophie Anderson and what this means. It goes without saying that some people will be concerned about their own friends or perhaps their own mental health or drugs issues. And if you are worried about yourself or someone else and you want help dealing with the chemsex issue, then the best way to find some help is to head to the Terence Higgins Trust website on tht.org.uk. Coming up on Outcast UK. Today in the show, we're going to be chatting to the Transformer Prison Officer, now on the Channel 4 show Banged Up Celebrities in Prison as a prison warden. What's going to stop five men dragging you in a cell and raping you and trying to prove you're still a woman? Prisons are the most volatile places anyway, and then when you add a protected characteristic to that, which a lot of people disagree with, it puts you in a lot more danger. Jackson Feely is on the show, a full chat coming next after a check on the week's LGBTQ plus news stories with Kev McGrath. Outcast UK. I know you've heard this how many times before, but humour me. Could the UK finally be getting closer to banning conversion therapy? ITV News says a proposal for a new law is being introduced to the House of Commons tomorrow. It's been drafted by backbench MPs from a number of parties after repeated failures by the government to make this happen. Won't be voted on until March at the earliest. The practice is already banned in 13 countries. Marcus James was just 14 years old when he was put through conversion therapy. He tells Hi-Ho Kids it started with full days of manual labour while repeating Bible passages, and that's not even the half of it. I was told that my friends were all going to die of AIDS, that I was going to die of AIDS. I was not allowed to communicate with anybody. I couldn't even talk to my mom on the phone. The more I was resistant to what they were trying to do, the abuse increased into what's called forced fasting. I was starved. A UK ban was first promised by the Conservative government back in 2018. There's been delay after delay, though, because the party's massively divided on this. Seems we've got a top cardinal from Ghana on board as a queer ally. Peter Turkson says it shouldn't be a criminal offence to be a homosexual there. Gay sex can get you three years in prison, and there are plans for much worse punishments currently going through the West African country's parliament. The Cardinal says people should be educated so they can better understand the issue. Roman Catholic bishops in Ghana say homosexuality is despicable. Yes, that's right, despicable, like Hans Gruber in Die Hard. And there's going to be a film about the rise of a gay US politician who's an absolute ruddy fantasist. Republican George Santos has just been expelled from Congress for ethics violations. Some of his greatest hits include falsely claiming to be descended from Holocaust survivors and saying his mum died as a result of 9-11. The rights to a book about him have been snapped up by HBO. This is the UK's hottest LGBTQ 
Outrageous. Outcast UK. Thanks for coming in. You've been doing so much stuff recently, haven't you? <laughs> I mean, everything. if it looks like that, then that's great. Yeah. <laughs> You've been on everything. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to be on a lot. I think I've been trying over the last sort of like two years, just like build the foundations of something. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. I want it to have longevity um, and I want to... Um, build people's trust in me and what I'm doing mm-hmm. um, and yeah recently I feel like it's just got more and more but it's just repeatedly like you know going doing any po- every podcast I can or going speaking to everyone I can or doing whatever I can so if it looks like I'm everywhere that's great because yeah, it you means are. it's building you are and the TV stuff as well do you know the first things I've seen you in were with um, Thomas Hartley Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you did that podcast, didn't you? You still doing that? Yeah, 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 we you still are. do it. Yeah, I built like a little studio in my spare room. Have you? Yeah, yeah, so we just sit and chat shit doing that. Okay, yeah, yeah. I get that because I've done exactly the same yeah, thing. Yeah, because it's therapy. Like, it's I, really I literally love it because it's just, I just think it's therapy and you sit there with the headphones on, they're just the noise, it's just nice. Yeah, it cancels everything <laughs> out, doesn't it? There's yeah. nothing more intimate in a lot of ways than doing a podcast, I think. No. It's like going for a beer with someone, isn't it? You know what I mean? If you're doing it right, it's it's kind of, it's kind of, yeah, like I that, love it. it. I love it. I think it's, well, if you're comfortable, obviously, I think it's, I just think it's like therapy. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, so you're on Gadio do the week with um, Paris and Dave. Yeah, that was fun. Paris from my faves. Yeah. Been on the show loads. Um, tell us a bit about the story then so far. So you were saying that um, it's been a bit of a whirlwind since leaving the prison service. And um, tell me about that. So basically, because I've been like building this like, on the side of working full time as a prison officer, right. um, I transitioned within the prison service. Um, so served three years as a female officer three years as a male and kind of took those prisoners and everyone on that journey with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that in itself has been a whole journey. And alongside that, I've been trying to build um, like a social media presence as someone who is just trying to have the conversations in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm not a fan of screaming and shouting and going mad. And I don't think it gets us anywhere. No, I don't think jumping down someone's throat if they make a mistake helps anyone understand anything. I think it just makes people retreat and go, I don't want to have this conversation. Yeah, or it's too complex. There's another one. Yeah. It's too complicated. Yeah, and and I didn't. I never wanted people to be afraid to talk to me or afraid to ask questions or afraid to like learn and understand. And from prisoners or officers or my, my mum and dad or family and friends, from what everyone's told me, allowing people to feel safe enough to... Mm-hmm make a mistake but it be okay or ask a question or understand and not and know that I'm not going to go mental has made everyone else want to understand more and they really really do now understand more so that just kind of makes me want to do that on a on as big of a scale as possible because I think if you can touch people's emotion you can change the mindset yeah completely if they connect with you and think oh yeah I like him then you kind of yeah. get in the right place aren't you yeah you know exactly mean? because it's it's never been about gender for me it's, it's about life. And I'm sure you've probably heard me say that a million times, but it, it is like we're all constantly in transition and it's about doing the things that you really don't want to do and the things that scare you more than anything to live a life that's that's true to you and that's authentic and that makes you really happy. So I just want to spread that message and inspire people to live a life more true to themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that, about the idea of everyone's always in transition because you are, aren't you? I'm a different person to 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Like yeah, exactly. Like almost. whether you're leaving a relationship or changing job or, you know, moving across the country, leaving prison, coming out of the military, all these things. I've transitioned so many times in my life that we're all constantly trying to adapt to the changes in our lives and find the ability to cope 
and 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 um, progress through that mm-hmm. and be okay at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So I think by actually speaking to people and going, what's the real reasons you're struggling, or what's really stopping you making that decision? What are you really really scared of, but you know you should be doing? It started to like inspire prisoners to stop self-harming and stop taking drugs and Mm -hmm. realize that it's never too late to change your own life if you're willing to do the hard things Mm -hmm. so they've kind of been like um i've been doing both at the same time and it got to a point where the more information is out there about me the more dangerous that job becomes in the prison service yeah yeah Um, and with the tv show coming out and things like that i had to make the decision to walk away from one thing that I love because I wanted to go all in on this. Um, and so obviously the TV and all of this and then doing the event, all of these things happening at the same time, it's probably just because I've got free time. I'm like, right, come on, let's go. Yeah, yeah, loads of energy. <laughs> yeah. Let's get it done. Yeah, take yeah. advantage of um, it, yeah. Yeah, because that's why I left, basically. I, I left to no job. I'm just trying to go all in on this and try and make a career out of it. Mm-hmm. So what it'll turn into, I don't know, but it's something I'm passionate about, so we'll see. So how was the reaction in like, um, the prison service? You're a prison officer. So you're dealing with, you're out, you're out there in the the general prison population doing all the prison officer things. Yeah. And did the, so did all the prisoners know where you were working or? Um, yes. So they all knew me before. They all knew me as Miss Feely. Uh Um, and initially never in a million years did I think I would be able to go back into a prison. Mm -hmm. Like absolutely not. Because like my mum's biggest fear, for example, was what's going to stop five men dragging you in a cell and raping you and trying to prove you're still a woman. Yeah. You know, like prisons are the most volatile places anyway. And then when you add a protected characteristic to that, which a lot of people disagree with, mm-hmm. it puts you in a lot yeah, more course. danger. Yeah. And initially I was, I went off sick and I was like, I can't, I can't do that. And I spent about a month off and realized that when I made the decision to, to transition it was a it was a i do this or i die so if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it properly and i'm gonna take everyone on the journey with me and try and help everyone understand and try and change the way people think about this because it should not be this terrifying to just be yourself mm. you know i'd been in i'd been in the military i'd done all these things i'd been in the prison nothing ever scared me as much as walking back into a prison as a trans man yeah and and face that and I just knew that it was, I've said I'm going to do this or I die. So every decision that I've made over the last two, two and a half years is, well, I'll do this or I die. And doing that has just helped me take one day at a time and take everyone on the journey with me. And that's proved really powerful. And I decided to go back into the prison. I looked exactly the same. I literally had just shaved my head and I worked on, um, like a specialist unit, uh, it's called a psychologically informed planned environment, which caters for um, prisoners who have been very much stuck in the system. They don't know how to manage their emotions or maintain their relationships. A lot of lifers, they've never dug into their own trauma or why they act the way they do and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's a lot more in-depth work with these people. And we did a lot of groups with them and stuff and I, and I went back and I just sat down in one of these groups and just told them everything and, mm-hmm. and spoke to them about vulnerability, about being suicidal, about everything that was going on with me and what I had to do. And 
by me telling them that and them seeing me in the most vulnerable state that I could be in, in the most dangerous place that I could be, started to give them the belief and the courage that it, it's never too late to change your own life. So they can change their lives essentially from the path that they're on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because when I sit there and I'm like, you have to do the hard shit. Like you have to look yourself in the mirror and like stop playing the victim. Mm -hmm. You know, this, all these things have happened, which is horrendous, but use them, use them to power through and, and look into yourself and understand it and put yourself through that. Because on the other side is your happiness and, an, and a different life and a different person. And they knew that I wasn't bullshitting then because they were watching me do it. Because you made yourself vulnerable. Yeah. 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 Um, and they watched me transition from Jess to Jack's like, over a three year period. And it's given them so much hope and pride. And um, I don't know if you've heard this story before, but about a year in, I held like a transgender awareness event um, to like thank the prison for going on that journey with me and stuff. And it was, there was about 150 members of staff there. And even like my mom and my sister came in and made, I made a documentary and all these things. And only the, the lads off that unit were allowed up prisoner wise. And they had t-shirts made for them to wear and they all had a butterfly on the front and on the back, they had like quotes that I live by. So one said, um, feel the fear and do it anyway. Another one said, remember who you are. And another one said, be unapologetically you. And this guy came up to me on the morning who'd been there since the beginning with me through all this. And he's in his fifties and he got sentenced to what's called an IPP sentence, which I don't know if you're familiar with prison sentences. It's an indefinite one. Yeah. So yeah. they don't give them out anymore mm -hmm. um, because it left people really hopeless. And he's stuck now, is he? Because he's in one of these so IPPs. So they, yeah. they get stuck. Yeah. So unless you can pass a parole board, you can't get out of prison. So he was sentenced to two years, but because of, you know, the way he was then, severe drug addict, um, all of these things, he's been in 16 that's horrendous, isn't it? Because he because he couldn't pass a parole board, yeah. yeah. And then it gets harder and harder because yeah. they're looking at your past, and so he's served his time. Do you know what I mean? And and over the last sort of two three years, he's completely changed his life, mm -hmm. and he's now one of the nicest, most polite, you know, people I've ever met. And I'm and I feel a lot of pride for him because he has changed his life. And he came up to me on the morning. and He was like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna wear a jumper underneath my t-shirt." So I was like, why? And he, and he said, um, well, I've, I've never left, I've not left the wing in 15 years without long sleeves on because he had really severe self-harm scars all down his arms. Yeah. And so I, I said to him, I was like, what's it say on the back of that t-shirt? And he said, be unapologetically you. I said, what do we always, what do we always talk about? Like, there's nothing to be ashamed of. They're part of you. The part of who you are. The scars, yeah. The, yeah, the scars are a proof that you made it through mm -hmm. and that you're a completely different man now. Like you you'd be proud of them. It, it's proof that you've completely changed your life and you've you beat whatever tried to hurt you. Go up there and show everyone how much you've changed. And and he did. And he and he went up and he made a speech in front of 150 people, showed everyone his scars, um, and was like, I'm I'm not ashamed of them anymore. They're part of me, they're part of my journey and spoke about me and how, how I'd saved his life and how I'd inspired him to want to help other prisoners in the same situation. And when I left a few months ago, he wrote me a card and he was like, I, I owe you my life. 
Mm-hmm. And I, because for me, that's the, that's the power of living your truth. That's, that's the power of, of trying to find the courage to, to transition whatever, whatever way you need to transition and, and be unapologetically you because it's inspired him that it isn't too late to change your life. Yeah. You've been stuck for 16 years, but now is the time. And, and he has done, and hopefully in the next few months he will get his parole. Were there any points when you were working in the prison? Which prison was it? Are you not allowed to say? It was Hinley and Wigan. Okay. Were there any points where you felt fearful? Um, yeah, all the time. It's yeah. it's a scary environment. Yeah, um, I couldn't do it. I, I probably felt more fear initially, obviously, especially in the beginning, because it's very obvious and it's... It's awful being in the the in between stage of transitioning, you know, where you, I'm not Jess anymore, but I'm not Jax, and I, and I I feel like a freak, and I feel like, you know, half man, half woman. I don't know who I am. I'm not. I've lost Jess, but I've not built Jax, and it's really obvious to everyone. And how do I look? And but you know what? I never. And this is why I. This is why I believe so much in the way you have this conversation. I never got transphobic abuse. You didn't know? No. Like, I got hit, I got punched, I got attacked. But I, it was not for that reason. And But they'd all come back to me afterwards and go, but you know it weren't because of that. That's interesting, isn't it? Because they had respect for that. Because, yeah. I'd, because I'd allowed them to ask about it and learn about it and talk to me about it. And they had immense respect for the fact that, well, if you can do that and walk back into a prison and come and tell all of us about it whilst trying to help us then I can change my own life. So even when they were annoyed at me or arguing or whatever, you know, apart from the odd what comment of people who didn't know me, the prisoners who didn't know me, but the people who did, never. And they'd, they would actually stick up for me. And it puts prisoners in a in a dangerous situation, sticking up for staff. Mm-hmm. But they, would, they, they wouldn't let anyone say a bad word about me, whether, they, whether we were on good terms or not. Because when it comes to that topic, they were like, nah. Mm. You don't do that. So the key there was making yourself vulnerable, wasn't it, I guess? Exactly, yeah. It was like, like saying, just, this is what's going on, I'm not hiding anything about it. Yeah, just just showing people that that this is not weird. It's it's what I have to do to still be me and yeah. still be alive and be a better human being and change my own life. So they, because it's the same, you know, like we were talking about transitioning just then, it's the same, mm-hmm. you know, you trying to adapt to leaving prison or adapt to stopping self-harming or adapt to coming off drugs or whatever there might be different circumstances around it but it's it's trying to go from one place where you really don't want to be to get to the place that you want to be and getting through the really hard bit in the middle mm-hmm. and they related to that because i never i never wanted to make they? it yeah i never wanted to make it about the gender and they related to that which makes me want to have that conversation with more and more people because it's 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 just it's not about it's not about the gender. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's funny that you say that they they kind of respected that because there's a story and you've gone through something you've made yourself vulnerable. And I often yeah. think you know if someone's looking down on people who might have had a drugs problem and they're trying to move into a different position. It, I think that that is the most ridiculous perspective you could ever take because if someone has gone through the effort of trying to change and trying yeah. to do something. That says everything about them. That says that, that that's yeah. a lot of strength. I would employ someone on the basis of that. You know what I mean? And so they must have looked at you in your position and thought, in a way that they didn't expect. 
yeah. they, they, they really related to that. And, and yeah, that yeah, they were like, that, well, if you can do it, I can do it. Yeah. So, so, and it made them want to then go, actually, I have to, I have to sit in these hard conversations about my own trauma or mm-hmm. I have to sit in this uncomfortable bit of, you know, not taking drugs or own the fact that I used to self-harm, but take it with me, yeah. you know, and, and talk about all these things and break it down and have all those conversations that they would have been really scared to have otherwise. And they would have been scared to be vulnerable and they would have been scared to yeah. open up and they would have been scared to look themselves in the mirror, really and go, actually, what is the problem? Because mm-hmm. I might be the problem, but I'm also the solution. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were in the army before before that, I didn't know that. Tell me about that. RAF, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I joined when I was uh, 19, mm-hmm. um, and I was part of a, like a tactical unit that flew all over the world, guarding military planes and whatever sort of came on, went off, or mm-hmm. if wherever they were in the world. Um, so yeah, I did that for a while. Um, that massively changed my life because I sort of struggled with my mental health as a teenager and growing up and stuff, mm-hmm. not knowing that it was to do with transitioning, but just thought that I struggled with my mental health and then started questioning my sexuality in, t- in terms of being a gay woman at the time. Mm-hmm. And joining the military was one of the best things I'd ever done because it, it, it gave me... A massive sense of belonging, um, and it put me in uniform, so I didn't have to think about how to dress or how to mm-hmm, be dressed. For you. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. like I, ju- I could just you eat then you dress like that, you do this, you're around all these people who are dressed the same. I started playing rugby. I was suddenly surrounded by all these confident gay women who knew who they were. You know, they didn't dress masculine, they didn't dress feminine. They were just themselves, mm-hmm. and it made me feel at home. Like, oh well, this is who I am, and. Uh, me and my family thought we've like we've cracked it you know this is what will sort you out you just need to be physically and mentally challenged and in this group of people and you find your sexuality and all these things it kind of all fitted together and it made me stand tall and proud um after sort of struggling with my own identity and everything I've done throughout my life has kind of been like filling a void and some things would last two weeks the military lasted four years right and as soon as I started playing more rugby, I ended up um, changing to getting posted and doing a desk job so that I could play more rugby. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I was sat behind a desk, I had to deal with me. And, and you didn't like that? And yeah. No. And I didn't know it was to do with transitioning, but I had to sit with Jess and whatever that mental health crisis was. And I just started to become really depressed really fast. Um, and... I know now why, now why I couldn't just sit with me because there was always a sense of feeling so uncomfortable. But when that happened, I realised that the military weren't fixing it. It was because I was busy and I was always trying to fill it with something. Um, And when I made the decision to, to come out, I was sort of in quite a bad way mentally, but got the job in the prison service which then sort of like just, I just basically hopped from one from uniform one institution to the to next. Another, innit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I just had this whole new challenge of like all these people, prisoners, it's different every day. I'm dealing with everyone else's problems. Um, and like, you know, buried my issues for another couple of years. When did they resurface and how did, how, how was it when they resurfaced? Um, Cause I'm seeing a pattern. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a pattern. Um, so what happened was when I, when I, 
came out of the military. I'd just come back off a tour and I, I asked my mum, is it because I want to be a boy? Is that what's wrong with me? Because throughout my life, I'd always been called a man by, you know, friends you fall out with or, you know, lads in school or, you know, I'd be in a pub at 18 in a dress and tall heels and long hair and someone would come up to me like, you're a bloke. Mm. Did that bother you? Yeah, it broke my heart completely. And and I look now and I didn't, I didn't look like a bloke. I must, you know, whether it was an energy or what, I don't know. But so I'd always had this. I was uncomfortable in girl stuff anyway, but then even when I tried with absolutely everything that I had, people would say these things, you know, I'd get shouted at in women's toilets. Um, it was really strange. And at the time it really, it broke me. Like it broke my heart so mm. much because I didn't want to be a girl who looked like a boy. I didn't want to be a boy who looked like a girl. I just no. wanted to be myself. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't understand why these people would do that. Um, and so those things had kind of been like reoccurring in my life. And I started to think about from being really young, I'd always been like quite anxious um, and just thought that I was like a bit of a worry about things. And I'd started at this point, I was 24 and I'd started to think about the fact that from being really little, I used to have these sort of like compulsive thoughts um, that used to like go round in my head. And they were, um, please don't anything bad happen. Please be okay, everything. I would never change anything and I love being a girl. Did that used to go through your head? All yeah, the time? And, it, and it was like one of them things, you know, like switching the light switch 50 uh, times yeah, or I know what you mean. whatever. <laughs> you know, we all have those like compulsive behaviors and they just used to be spinning around my head and it, it probably wasn't even something that I was massively conscious of, but it happened over and over again. And I knew that I did it. And I started to think about this at like 24 and I'm thinking, oh my God, I've just spent 20 years trying to convince myself that I want, that I was happy being a girl. So I didn't really know, but I had this like thought in the back of my mind and I asked my mum and she was like, no, like, of course not. You know, you're, the, you're this beautiful athletic woman, you know, you, this, you, this is why everyone loves you, your life and soul of the party. You know, you, you're so athletic. She used to call me Miss Congeniality. She'd be like, you're just, you, that's who you are, you Jess. And at the time, that's kind of what we both believed. And she says to me now, you know, if I'd have turned around and said, yeah, like, you know, you should have been a boy. And you'd have gone, right, my mum says it's okay, so I will. And then it was the wrong decision. She didn't ever forgive herself. Yeah, I can understand why. So I think she had the thought in the back of her mind as well. So I kind of just buried it, went into the prison service, and just, I was happy as Larry then for like another two years. Yeah. 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 Um, And then I had a conversation with someone about two years later about mental health. And I just said really blase, like, oh yeah, I used to, I used to struggle with mental health. You know, I, I used to think I wanted to be a man and, and just said that. So was this two years ago? Three. Three years ago. Yeah. Not, not, not that long ago. No, no. Um, sorry, four, cause I spent like a year in the YouTube hall. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I said this and then from that conversation, it just stuck. Like I, I just couldn't get rid of it then. And I was what, 26 at this point. And I just couldn't get it out of my head. It was like, it was like the universe had been like, it's going to have to come out at some point, you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, just pressing. And I just could not get it out of my head. And, and I, I ended up sort of diving into YouTube and trying to figure out if this was even a thing. You know, I didn't, I didn't even know it was a thing. 
and started to find all these trans men mm -hmm. who were like documenting the transition and changing the bodies and being models and doing all these things and they were happy and I was like oh my god like this is actually like I could do that mm -hmm. but at the same time I was looking at it thinking I can't do that in Wigan <laughs> I can't do that to my family and I cannot do that in a prison so you could in a prison so <laughs> your family were all right with you weren't they and it turns out you can in Wigan <laughs> yeah um so at the time I was like I'll just live knowing that that exists and I crack on um and spent about a year living in YouTube not telling anybody but what I didn't realize was the more I was becoming accepting and understanding who I really was the angrier I was becoming with the world why because that I wasn't doing it yeah um and I was becoming more jealous of these people these these people who were doing all these things that I couldn't do and I didn't realize it, but it was starting to have a massive effect on me as a prison officer. And when you're sort of in that situation in a prison, you start to put yourself in very dangerous situations. Make you angry? Is that what? Yeah, I was. I was just fuming at life, and I was quite feisty before anyway. This added extra. But this just sort of, I was just ready to fight. I just wanted to fight, and when you're in a prison, it's very easy to cause a fight. Yeah, you know, I it's very imagine. easy to. Um abuse your position so to speak as a prison officer you know i mean it's four prisoners to like it's four officers to a hundred prisoners but if you want to you know go mad then then it's very easy you can do that someone will kick off with you um so over nothing i was just sort of losing my shit and without realizing it i was suicidal because i was in positions where i could have been getting me i caved in and no one would have known mm. but i just didn't care i was just angry i just wanted to fight and um, I ended up getting pulled in by my governor um, and she said to me, you know, we've we've had several complaints off prisoners and off staff about you and, and this and that, which hurt me so much because I'd always, I was always so proud of being a good prison officer mm. and I didn't realise I'd, I'd started to change and she said, I'll read this one complaint out to you and it was off this prisoner who was like twice the size of me <coughs> and it said if I could choose between being in a shark tank with a shark or being on the prison landing with Jess Feely, I'd pick, I'd pick the shark tank every time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm just like, what? Are you serious? Like, I'm one woman? Like, you think I'm terrorising 90 men? And I just went absolutely ballistic and I was just fuming at the whole thing. They were like, we'll get you a mentor, we'll do this, we'll do that. And I was just like, fuck, right off. And it stormed out of the out of the office. And at that point, I completely just broke down then. Being angry... People go one of two ways when they've got stuff going on. They either go in yeah. on themselves or they go angry. And I think the thing about being angry is it makes you still feel like you've got some power, doesn't it? Yeah. You don't feel like a victim if, you, if you're angry, do you? Yeah. So I can understand how you've sort of, you've felt like that and you've sort of externalised it in that way because so many other people would be like, you're in a really threatening environment, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was just fuming. And when she said that to me, I was upset and I just broke down at that point and I knew then that I couldn't keep doing this. Yeah. Like I knew that I was like, I was done. I couldn't, I couldn't pretend anymore. I couldn't do it. Um, and I knew that at that point that I either jump off a cliff or I do this. Mm. Um, Everyone I've spoke to in the same position said exactly the same thing. There comes a point where you're like, I'm either dead yeah. or I do this. Yeah. And 
I didn't want to die. You know, I had an amazing life. I had an amazing family. I was just so uncomfortable in my own skin. And I'd tried everything. Mm -hmm. I'd literally tried absolutely everything to be Jess. Um, I'd tried, you know, these amazing careers and just wanted to make my mum and dad proud. And I'd tried to be a girl and I tried to be happy. And then I was gay and I was this and I was, I, I just, I couldn't do anything else. Um, and I knew I had to tell them at that point. And <laughs> when I came out the first time, 10 years before this, I was sat down, like crying my eyes out at 20 years old. Cause I didn't know any gay women in Wigan. I just thought this is like an RAF thing and they're all going to, and they're going to go mad. And I sat down and I was crying and my dad was just like, you gay, aren't you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> is that okay? I'm sorry. You think there's no gay women in, in Wigan as well. And there's well, loads of gay years, women in Wigan. 10 years ago though, I didn't know any, didn't I didn't know, know any, anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's loads now. Yeah. Uh, so that was like great. And we just had this big conversation. It was all fine. And then obviously I sat them down again, 10 years later. So they knew something was coming and my dad decides to start guessing again. So he's like, you're pregnant. Like, <laughs> nope. No, <laughs> you're getting a puppy. So I was like, no. <laughs> and then he literally said as a complete joke, he just went, you're not having a sex change, are you? But like joking, a joke, complete right? joke. Didn't see it coming at all. No. no, and I was just like, shit. And I just went, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And like the colour just drained from his face, mm -hmm. and the atmosphere in that room just completely changed. And in what way? Shock. Mm -hmm. The only person who had a tiny inkling was my mum. Right. The rest of them, like my brother and my sister and my dad, even my mum really just did not have a clue that that moment was ever going to come. Mm -hmm. And the thing that hits parents when you tell them something like that is fear. Fear of what's going to happen fear to you. Fear of what's going to happen yeah, to you, yeah. yeah. More than anything, it's fear. Half the time, it's nothing to do with the fact that you're going to do it. It's how you're going to be treated, uh -huh. the abuse you're going to get, you know, trans people's existence is questioned constantly within the media. It's coming out as gay on steroids, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's yeah. frightening. And immediately my dad was like, well, we're going to have to leave. We're going to have to leave Wigan. Like, I'm going to end up punching everybody. Right, yeah. Because he just immediately thought that I'm going to get so much abuse and he's going to end up fighting everybody. Um, And my mum was thinking, oh my God, like she said now, even though she kind of knew, it was still like getting slapped across the face because she was looking at me thinking, Jess has actually reached a point now where if she doesn't do this, she's not going to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. And they've gone through every emotion under the sun from anger to upset, to fear, to everything. Um you know, denial, like this is what, is this the right decision? Blah, blah, blah. And all of that's okay. You know, you have to, as much as someone doesn't die, you have to grieve a person. Like they gave birth to a daughter. They named that daughter. Mm -hmm. They've had 28 years of Jess, you know, that's not just going to go away. And I tried to go into that with the most understanding as possible because you have to allow them to learn and understand and give them space to do the same because it's a transition from, it doesn't just affect me, it affects everyone around me. Yeah. And initially they, they didn't want to let go of the little girl and, the, and especially my dad, you know, they really struggled with it, but it came to a point where I had to say to them, you know, it it's, it's a dead daughter or a living son. 
Like I've, tr- I, I'm not killing Jess. She's coming with me. Like I'm taking everything about her with me. I don't want you to delete anything. I don't even care if you call me Jess or she for the rest of my life. All I care about is that you try and that you accept that this is who I am because I, I can't do this anymore. I've tried with everything, everything possible to be Jess and I just can't do it anymore. And by doing that and taking them on this journey and explaining parts of the process and telling them everything I'm doing and I'm going doing this podcast because it has power to do this and, you know, just explaining everything to them and helping them understand. Now they are like the biggest advocates in the world and not just because I'm their kid, because they understand how much this affects people Mm -hmm. and how much, how important it is to have these conversations and help people understand and try and remind parents that, and politicians and everyone else, you preach that you love your kids unconditionally, but they can't be trans. Mm. Well, then that that's not unconditional love then. No, it's not at all, is it? You see so much of that in like in the States, don't you? Have you seen some yeah. of like, the politicians standing up going, uh, oh, but if it, was, if it was suicide or transitioning, well, then suicide it is. Like, you shouldn't be a parent. And now they've seen the light come back in their child's eyes. They look at me now and they're like, oh my God, that was absolutely right. Like that, that is absolutely right. Look how happy you are. So they've seen now that that's, that's real and that was the right decision and they want to help me do everything to inspire everyone else. Um, but it's okay to not be okay in the beginning mm-hmm. and go through that process because mm. it's scary. Next time on Outcast UK. Tell me about the TV show because this for me came from nowhere. I was <laughs> like, you're everywhere now. What's yeah. your, what, what is this? What's happened? Yeah. So it's a big show. The the powerful thing about the show, obviously, for me, is the fact that I'm literally Jax. Yeah. Like, it's got absolutely nothing to do with me being trans. I'm Does not... anyone, is it get referenced in the show at all? No, not at all. Okay, right. Play Outcast UK. 